Welcome to Know Your Risk Radio on 97.3 Cairo FM and AM 770 KTTH. Know Your Risk Radio is hosted by Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital. Whether it's preservation of capital or an aggressive growth strategy, every investor needs a clearly defined risk profile. Know Your Risk Radio is brought to you by Bulwark Capital, helping families navigate the ever-changing and often volatile markets. Know Your Risk Radio starts now. Here's your host, Zach Abraham. We are back. Thank you so much for joining us for another of the most scintillating hours in finance radio. Pumped to be here today. Obviously have a ton to talk about. Um, <clears throat> man, things are coming fast, right? The pace of things geopolitically, economically. Uh, this is just, it's moving quick. And and I was saying this in the three-minute open to the folks on KTTH. Markets have always fascinated me. Uh, from as early as I can remember. I think part of it was just, I, I think probably the first part of it was just, I thought it was really cool, right? Because my dad did it. I remember back when he used to, I still remember when he used to get stock quotes, he had a phone service and he would type the tickers into the phone service. And that's how he got his, that's how he got his stock quotes, right? It's all pre-internet. And so that, that was probably, but that was probably what, um, what did it. But then the whole concept of value investing just captured my mind. I just loved the idea of buying something that everybody had thrown aside that had inherent value. And you're the one that sees it and you're going to be patient and you're going to get one over on them, you know, for lack, I'm doing the best I can to translate it as a kid. And that's, it's funny because the old adage is, is value investors aren't, uh, aren't made, they're born. And I think that's true, right? Like there's just a, a way that that has all, and it still does. I don't get to do it nearly as much anymore, which is why we've hired two analysts to help me out with that. But I still love breaking down companies. I still love, um, I like to get to the point where I know a company as if I ran it, right? Where somebody can sit there and go, well, what if this happens, <clears throat> you know, what if I, you know, whatever. And, and you, and you know it so well, right? You don't know the numbers. I think that's where people get sidetracked in fundamental research. They're, they, they think citing the numbers, knowing the numbers. What I've found is if you really want to know a company, understand the way money moves through it, right? Understand what it means, right? Understand what happens if revenues were to drop 10%. What parts of the business would that pressure? What would they do in response, right? That's when you really understand it. The, 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 you know, hitting the exact numbers. And you hear so many of these people talk about that. It always sounds fancy. It always sounds smart because you can rattle off numbers. But that's not really knowing, right? The exact numbers are not really that important, right? It's like knowing it. You know, I always thought of it kind of like a race car driver. You know, it's like he pulls it in and there's the guy that's like, well, you know, when you're going around the corner, you need the coefficient of speed to balance out with the gravity pull. Okay, that's all fine. Doesn't mean that you're ready to drive a Formula One car, right? Where the driver that's never been in a physics class or whatever goes, hey, the back end's a little bit loose when I'm punching around corner three and I'm not a race car driver. I've just seen movies. <laughs> so don't, don't be impressed. But you know what I mean? Like that's the kind of knowledge, right? The race car driver, not the, not the engineer. Right, because that's what I've always thought about as being a money manager and a good investor. We don't want to be the engineer; we want to be the driver, the one that has that knows how it's going to handle in the corners, right? And that's how you really understand a business. And so that value side of it has always been um, has been so intriguing to me. But I kind of went off on a tangent there. What I was going to say is is along with that has been a fascination with markets. And and I was saying this in the warm up to the folks on on KTTH, and I mentioned that to you earlier, but I'll get I'll get back to the point. Was that it's it's amazing to me how, and it's a replication of human behavior because markets are made up of individuals, but it's always this way. When things change, they tend to change in such a dramatic way. For instance, just think about the setup, right? So, so you've had a relatively low growth, low inflation world since 0809, relatively low amount of geopolitical hostilities. We were in Afghanistan and, and Iraq and things like that. But outside of that, it was pretty calm, right? Pretty serene in, in, you know, given historical standards. And if you think about it, that's, you know, classic environment for low interest rates. Uh, for the most part, a lot of global cooperation economically, and hence, you know, stocks that benefit from, benefit from that, 
you know, big manufacturers, right? Because other governments are more friendly, big tech, right? All of that stuff works. And then you reach COVID. And then the government does what it does. And inflation kicks up in earnest since the first time since, or for the first time since the 70s. And then geopolitical things start to boil. And all of these things, point to an opposite direction in terms of what investors want, right? And, right, the things that you would typically want to have and the things that, that in terms of price and value benefit from this, right, the, 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 the setup that we're looking at now, it's the inverse of what benefited in the run-up to this. And then simultaneously, because we're coming off the longest bull market in, in the world or in history, Everybody is disproportionately loaded up in the things that are not the most ideal in times like these. And they have the least amount in history of the things that do benefit. What am I speaking to? I'm speaking to commodities, energy, and natural resources in general, right? Those are the things that you want to own in, in times of inflation and in times of geopolitical conflict. And a lot of times those two things come together. You know, you can literally sit there and say that inflation was the cause of World War II. Right? These things go hand in hand in glove. Interestingly enough, and I'm not saying that we're about ready to enter the third, I'm not making a comparison. I'm just well, I am making a comparison. I'm not I'm I'm not at all suggesting the outcome is going to be similar, okay? We try to stay away from hyperbole here, guys. You want to hear hyperbole? Just pull up Twitter. Right? There's plenty of it out there. <clears throat> but it's just fascinating to me, right? And 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 the and the whole rage, you know, the whole um, ETF fad. Not fad. I mean, like I've said before, it's it's there are very few things in the world that are just binary, right? One or a zero. I we use a lot of ETFs. They can be very helpful. And I think for the most part, they're great. It's a great innovation for the average investor. But like anything in life, and I think this is one of the things that our culture has forgotten, like anything in life, you can, you can go overboard. And because of the benefit, and it, it, it's also, this is another market story, right? ETFs didn't get where they are because they're bad. They got where they were because they're good, right? Because they, they fixed problems. They addressed issues. They gave investors a lower cost, you know, for the most part, better, better performing way to invest in markets. Why do I say better performing? Because what is it? 93% of mutual fund managers underperform their benchmark. So if you can buy the benchmark at lower fees than the mutual fund, you win 93% of the time. That's a good thing. But that's usually where, you know, that's, that's kind of what people always forget about, you know. Usually excess and bubbles come from, they, they, have, they have real origins, right? It's just a, it's a trend or a, or a sign change or something that just gets taken too far. Right, it just goes too long. It gets too extreme, and that's what's interesting about this period of time. Because I, I think you can make an argument in terms of markets being one-sided. You can make an argument that the market has never been more one-sided than it is today. Why? Because no other sector in the history of the S and P has held as much value. Right? What is there? There's eleven different sectors in the S and P five. Is that right? Eleven or twelve different sectors in the S and P five hundred, and tech right now is making up. Don't quote me. I mean, it's somewhere between 30 to 35% of that weighting. So one out of 12 sectors is represented or makes up 35% of the weighting in the S&P. And maybe it's 30. It's, it's between 30 and 35. Pretty remarkable though. And so what does that mean? So what, what, what that means is then, then – and we've talked about this on the show before. But when you flip around then and we'll just use energy as a proxy, energy historically is represented 12 to 15%. Um, weight in the S and P 500. Now there are a lot of reasons that you could make, and I and I think that they would be logical, you know, uh, totally appropriate reasons for suggesting that that percentage should come down. Right. So I wouldn't be ringing the you know ringing the alarm bells if it made up nine or ten percent. The historical average was twelve to fifteen. Things change in economies. There are different sources of energy now. Right. There. You know, a smaller percentage of cars coming out of manufacturing plants need gas. Now, there's still a lot of them are being funded or being fueled at the end of the day, still by fossil fuels. But I'm just saying, I you know, if if somebody's going, you got to buy oil because now it's only a nine and a half percent weighting and it's average twelve to fifteen. 
Well, they, 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 those are normal, you know, those are normal market machinations. But when you look at it today, energy represents four and a half percent in the S&P 500. Natural resources generally are the smallest exposure in the S&P 500 ever. Right. So now you go into an inflationary environment with geopolitical pressures, conflicts popping up all over the place, and people are all loaded up on the thing that worked best in the previous cycle. And that cycle is the inverse of the one we're staring at today. It just fa- it just fascinates me. You know, just the other thing, too, that I've learned, and it, it's not a good timing, but whenever you hear the entire market and everywhere on the news talk about how bad a certain sector is, right, whether it's automobiles, whether it's real estate, whether it's energy, it doesn't mean you're at a bottom, but it usually means you're pretty close. And if you want something that's going to outperform over the next 10 years, buy it. You know, don't just buy it writ large. But it literally is almost that simple. What's not that simple is the pathway there. What's not that simple is having, you know, and, and this is the thing that I think a lot, of, a lot of retail investors don't understand. If you want to outperform, especially if you want to outperform in a big way, get ready to underperform. For Now, hopefully you get lucky, you get the timing right, and you smash it, right? But sometimes to get that massive outperformance, you might need to sign up for two, three, maybe even four years of significant underperformance. And that's the part of value investing that nobody ever says, right? You need to be confident in your, in your research. You need to be confident in your positioning to hang in there because it's tough. FOMO is a real thing, even, you know, especially, I'd say, especially for professional investors because we're constantly being graded against that benchmark, right? The market. But it's just fascinating to me how markets work. They always, they always eventually get to that place. And, and, and I'll tell you, look, I'll tell you, I, I just, you know, I, I, I think that we're being a little too myopic right now, broadly speaking. I think there's a little bit too much questioning. Just sit back and look at the world, right? It, bottom line is, I think the vast majority, and, and, and I've said this before as well, last year should have proven it to you. The old ways are gone. Okay. Bonds are not, bonds do not anesthetize your equity risk. They enhance it. In a rising interest rate environment. So I, you know, is what it is. Anyway, okay, so we'll get into the actual market update here. So rates and yields, I believe it was in the overnight session last night. 10-year yield, we're still sitting right around 4.9. It did hit 5.0 at one point, quickly backed away. Pretty historic. We haven't seen the 10-year yield throwing off that much. We haven't seen the 10-year yield at that level or the 10-year bond throwing off that much yield since 07, I believe. 06, 07. Um, so pretty substantial. Um, now we talked about this on the daily dots, but basically it sounded to me like Powell without saying they weren't going to raise rates anymore. That's certainly what he was intimating. That's certainly how we interpreted it. But remember the fed funds rate that the fed controls, that only controls the front end of the curve for the most part. I mean, it impacts the whole curve. But just because the Fed doesn't raise does not mean interest rates can't keep going up. Now, I will be personally, and don't look, don't go trade on this, but I will personally be shocked if yields get substantively higher, like if the 10-year yield gets substantively higher than 5 to 5.5%. I didn't think it'd get here, though, so take that with a grain of salt. I just knew... I mean, we dipped our toes a little bit in duration about a year ago when the 10-year was yielding uh, like 4.1 to 4.2. I think we put a couple clients in some 10 years a little bit lower than that, but we, we, we were doing it, mixing them with twos, and then in some cases, twos and six-month treasuries. Just because, you know, I, I thought, and I, and I still think that, I think that in, in, in I, I will be very, very, very surprised if within a year or two from now, we're not looking back and saying, you know, four and a quarter on the 10 year was a pretty good rate. Probably should have bought more of it then. But again, in a world like that, so we started buying some, we're probably going to start nibbling on a little bit more here. Why aren't we loading up the truck? Um, It's a crazy world. It's a crazy world. We probably should be. If you were to ask me what I think my biggest mistake will be a year from now, probably be not not buying enough duration, not buying enough long-term U.S. government debt. Because uh, I just don't – I don't care what they – I heard one guy from the Fed saying he doesn't see any rate cuts. Um, 
at all next year. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. I don't, I don't know. I, I still, and I, and I reserve the right to be wrong. Right. And I'll gladly, you guys know me. If you listen to the show, I'll gladly admit it. If I am, I just, I don't see how they get there. Um, I, I, I just don't see how things don't just start imploding. What's interesting too, is that we mentioned to you guys on the show, how analyst earnings forecast for next year, we're looking at, you know, we saw earnings estimates from 10 to 15% increase in earnings next year. And we're, we're sitting there looking and going, what do you think? I, I saw an earnings estimate that I was reading earlier today that they're expecting Q2, an analyst, I think it was from Morgan Stanley. One of their analysts was expecting a 12% increase in earnings in Q2 of next year. And me and Chase are going over it and going, what on earth? And they don't attribute it to anything. They're just carrying the, 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 the trend since COVID. They're just carrying it forward. And we're looking at it and just scratching our heads going, how do you get there? I mean, you see, what is it? I, I think I was, again, do not quote me. We're reading a lot of this data all the time. But like demand for iMac Pros, I, I, what are Airbook Pros, iMac Pro, whatever. The Apple laptop, iBook, I, I, MacBook, MacBook Pro. That's what it is. MacBook Pro, uh, demand for those down 24%. Um, Nike revenues down. I, I just, I'm looking and going, what, what, what changes between now and the second quarter of next year? In fact, I think most things, I, I don't see how it's not worse. Remember going into this year, you had a 10% increase in social security. You had the bailout fund or you had the bailout, the BT, the, the bank, ah, what was it called? The bank, uh, BTFP or yeah, the bank treasury. Anyway, you had the, ba- the, 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 the bailout fund essentially for Silicon Valley bank, right? And the other regional banks. Well, at the end of the day, that was another $350 billion injection of liquidity into the market. You had the ramping of the IRA, right? The Inflation Reduction Act. <laughs> it's the equivalent of the guy running to the house fire with a torch, planning on putting the fire out with the torch. Um, but you had all these inflows of capital. None of those, none of those one-offs are going to occur next year. I, I just look at it and go, I, I don't understand what, what you people think. Wages have already stalled. For the most part, I, I just don't understand where that comes from. So uh, <clears throat> we'll have to see. Well, what I was going to say, though, what's interesting is you're starting to see analysts pull down those projections. Why all of a sudden? Who knows? I don't know why they were there in the first place. I don't know why you're starting to see it. But this is why, guys, you just cannot trust Wall Street analysts, especially at inflection points. Because what they do, for the most part, is like most humans, they extrapolate linearly. Right. It's the same. And I've said this. I think I said this last week. It's the exact same line of thinking and logic that got people to believe in going into 07, 08, 09, that real estate could just keep cranking out 8% annual increases into perpetuity. Right. Where any common, sober minded individual could sit there and go, well, wait a second. That means you think the average house price is going to double in the next eight and a half, nine years. If that's the case, who in the world could be able to afford a house? So, yeah. I mean, that's where we're at. Israeli-Palestine conflict. I mean, <clears throat> you know, you hate to you hate to, to reduce these things down to economic situations. But um, this is a very concerning time. I, I do, however, think that there are some hopeful signs. Um, the former a former intelligence chief from Saudi Arabia, Arabia uh, Saudi Arabia spoke. Uh, his name is Prince Turkey, T U R K I, and he had in his speech he had some very harsh things to say about the Israeli government. But interestingly enough, he also condemned the actions of Hamas, which you'd never would have heard that before. That is encouraging to me. It at least for the moment. It tells me that there are some, at least in Saudi Arabia, which would intimate to me that there are others in other parts of that part of the world, in the Arab world, that do not want this to spiral into a bigger conflict. Um, but we're going to have to wait and see because it, to me, it's all about what happens. What, what, what scares me about this is that whoever organized this assault on Israel to begin with, they knew, they knew that it would culminate with boots on the ground in Gaza. And I, if you heard the, the uh, episode I did with Dimitri Kafinas of Hidden, Hidden Forces podcast, um, what scares me about that is the coordination 
the kind of unprecedented coordination and sophistication of that assault on Israel and them knowing that that's going to result into, into troops going into Gaza, part of me is hoping that that isn't part of some bigger sinister plan. And I don't want to sound like some kid that's looking for the, you know, pro, you know, projecting the end of the world or World War Three or anything like that. But what scares me about this whole situation is I think that everybody needs to take a step back and take a breath because a situation like this could easily spiral into something like that. So God help us and God willing, it does not because, um, man, if those dominoes start falling and, and look, I'll probably do another show on this because this is not something that we can really tackle in a 40 minute, uh, 45 minute radio show. It's an hour show, but, you know, time for the spots and the ads and things like that. Um, but this situation in the Middle East could – not saying it's going to. I I, I would guess that it won't, right? I, my, I think that at this point I, I don't think that that's the odds-on favorite, you know, percentage play that things are going to spiral out of control. But when you look at the global map, when you look at simultaneously while this is happening, you're looking at the first kinetic conflict in Europe since World War II. That's concerning. And and when you start looking at the chessboard, you can just see how things could spiral very quickly and suck in the majority of the world's players. Um, and then I put here in my notes, we're on a razor's edge. And, and I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that. Um, and I think it really is that delicate. I think that if something falls this way or the other way um, – it could be crazy. Also, look at the level of unrest it's causing in our country. You haven't seen this before. The, the world is in a tenuous moment. And as investors, what concerns me is despite what pe- markets do not at all reflect this, guys. They just don't. You know, you look at what's going on. You look at the S&P trading at 24 times. Range, it just shouldn't be there. Now, to be fair, there are a lot of things that aren't trading at that level in the market. That valuation is almost single-handedly due to the to the magnificent seven as they're being referred to now but you know real estate home prices at all time highs there's just and i don't want to again i'm not trying to deduce this all down to money it's it's more important people's lives are more important you know global conflict is more important but just saying as investors at the end of the day regardless of what happens on a geopolitical scale you still got to pay for our lifestyle and so i i just boy if now is not a time for risk management i don't know what it is and and it's and it's helping we've had a really nice week it's been a nice week. We are closing that gap between the market quick. And kind of like I told you guys thought would happen, guys. Like I just, the, the backdrop, regardless of what stocks do, the backdrop isn't good. All right, stick with us through the break. We're going to be right back. But before we go, guys, quick note here. With where the markets have been recently, the most common concern we're hearing from people that we're talking to right now, from people like you, is just the need to lower risk in their portfolio. I think a lot of what we're talking is resonating and they see this, Right. Risk management is our focus at Bulwark Capital. That's what we are all about, okay? We can lower your fees, drastically reduce your risk, build you a portfolio where I can look at you and go, hey, you're not going to be ruined. You don't have enough risk on the table. You're going to be fine no matter what the economic outcome is. And by the way, there's also a lot more upside, right? Give us a call and find out how we can help lower the risk in your portfolio without, with increasing upside potential, Okay, by using our risk management strategy. So call us now at 866-779-RISK. Again, that's 866-779-RISK. Or go to knowyourriskradio.com or follow me on Twitter at KYR Radio. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. This is Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham. Listen to Zach uncover the truth about the financial markets with simple and honest advice to help you plan for retirement. Get your free copy of Zach's new booklet, Common Sense Investing. Go to knowyourriskradio.com. How many times in recent memory has your financial advisor not reacted to current events and also not made a change in your investment portfolio? Now, think about all the volatile events during that time that have threatened your retirement. That's Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital and host of the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Todd, we talk about it all the time, risk management. It's our number one focus. We actively manage every portfolio daily, looking for opportunities to lower risk, lower cost, and give you as much upside as possible. 
Let us show you how Bulwark's risk management strategy can protect that retirement you've worked so hard for. This is exactly why you need Zach and Bulwark Capital in your corner. You only get one retirement. Learn how Bulwark does it with their free common sense investing guide. Call 866-779-RISK or simply go to knowyourriskradio.com. That's 866-779-RISK or go to knowyourriskradio.com. Investment advisory services offered through Tech Financial LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital Management. And we are back. Okay, so <clears throat> we did it. We did a topic last week's show, talked about why rates are important, generally speaking. Okay, now, now I want to make the case for you guys for why I think that these earnings estimates are ludicrous. Right. Why this argument that I even heard a guy from, you know, I even heard the famous or, in my opinion, infamous Ken Fisher say earlier that the market's ready for the next leg higher in the bull market. Um, Now, I will acknowledge that I could be wrong. Like I said, I always will acknowledge that. And I will be the first one to tell you if that's true. Here's why I just can't get my head around that. Okay. Sometimes you need to sit back when you're investing. You have to you have to come to. Well, and if you, you'll be forced to come to this conclusion one way or the other. But regardless of how certain something sounds, regardless of how certain something seems to you, you must always acknowledge the potential of that thing not playing out the way it can. It's just, because it doesn't. Nobody, there's too many dynamics, right? There's too much dynamism in the global marketplace and in financial markets. There's too many inputs. Nobody can keep their hands on them. And things can switch at the, at this, you know, th- think about if this Middle Eastern thing spirals out of control. It, it, it changes the entire financial landscape of the global financial system. Maybe not permanently, but I mean, right, that will have massive impact on economies. And not all of it bad, unfortunately. But I'm just saying, right, that's a sea change. It's a shift that happens very drastically, very radically. Right? Going from a, going from a low inflation, low growth to 40-year high inflation over such a quick period of time, that's a radical shift. So what is the problem with that? Let's let's get into the, you know, because I think it's so easy to say, well, I think the economy is good. I think the economy is bad. I think it. So first of all, when looking at this, I think it's really important to put context, right? We talk about that show on all the, we talk about that on the show all the time. We live in a world devoid of context. You want to go look at social media? For the most part, social media is a context-free zone. Everybody just vomiting their opinions at everybody as frequently and as fast as they possibly can with very little or no context. So what do we have to look at? Let's, let's sit back and take a look at the context. So we are coming off of the largest and biggest and longest bull market in U.S. history. We are looking at reaching valuations. Most valuation metrics got to the highest levels we've ever seen. Uh, P.E. ratios were the second highest we'd ever seen for a, for a sustained period of time. Um, Real estate at the most inaffordable levels in history, right? So when price and those kind of things get extreme like that, especially when they're pushing beyond the ability for the average income to afford them, it's usually a good sign that the cycle is pretty stretched, right? The other thing, what did we have? We've also seen the highest profit margins on record. Predominantly, we, we, we would we would credit that to big tech, which has earned them, but Remember what Jeremy Grantham said, the famous hedge fund manager, that profit margins are the most mean reverting data set in history. Meaning, and what he meant by that was it's awesome to have really big margins, but when you see obscene margins, meaning if a company's, you know, makes a hundred dollars in revenue and they keep 40, right? Those are 40% profit margins. Why don't those typically last? Well, because of competition, right? Everybody wants to make 40% profit margins. That's why they don't tend to last. And every time margins get really good, people concoct a story and a narrative why this time is different. They will last, but they never do. All right, so you start looking at all the extremes of this cycle, debt levels, U.S. debt to GDP, interest rates, Fed balance sheet, all of these things are at historically excessive places. So, so that's the context, right? That's the environment. I think that's really important because if you were sitting there making a bull argument right now, despite the things that we're seeing in the world and the S&P was trading at 12 or 13 times earnings, historically, what that would tell you to do is bite the bullet and buy. Historically, 
It doesn't guarantee you're out of the woods. I mean, because we have seen the S&P 1981. I think the S&P was trading at three and a half times earnings, which I believe is its lowest. So it could still get there, but but that was one time, right? Typically speaking, you get down to 10 to 14 times earnings in there. You, long term, you should be buying. Okay, but we're not there yet. We're not even close. We're double those levels, right? So that's the context. We're also not coming out of a nasty long recession. Got the highest debt levels across the board on record. Right, So now if we just step back and think, what happens to those corporations' earnings as they have to refi their debt? It goes up. What about the lack of consumers being able to refi their home, pull cash out, pay off credit, credit cards? Certainly has to have a weight on consumer spending, right? What about people pushing off buying a new car? Right, because they don't want to pay an eight or nine percent interest rate on it. Maybe they, you know, they're like, "Well, you can still get financing, yeah, but you got to go look at the contingencies around that financing." And a lot of times, that means if you're paying sticker, you know, it, it, it just it matters. So all of these things that you look at that are a byproduct of this environment are not things that are complementary or not things that help the economy. Right? It's like putting brakes on the economy, which is why the Fed raised rates. But here's the other thing. Look at the Russell 2000, right? So we think we think about the S&P 500, that's 500 stocks. Right? Think about the Dow Jones Industrial, it's 30 stocks. Russell 2000, 2000 stocks, 2000 publicly traded companies. 30% of Russell 2000 companies have floating rate debt. Right? Meaning it's adjustable. Means it's already headed higher. If if and we ran some – now, we may not be dead on, but I, I do believe we're close. We looked at the Russell, and we figure between 40 to 50%. Again, don't quote me. The numbers could be slightly off. But if, if the average company in the Russell had to refi at rates that they would get today, you're looking at 40 to 50% of those companies being insolvent. Okay? What about commercial real estate? I saw I saw some comments from Jim Cramer not too long ago where Jim Cramer was like, oh, the commercial real estate thing's way overblown. We haven't seen those default. Yeah, well, of course you haven't. The refis haven't come up, right? We've talked about this in the show before. But we can just go down the refi schedule, look at it, what's coming up next year. Way more of those properties need to be refinanced next year. You go plug in current rates or anything close to it, they're, insult- they're, they're, they're upside down. Which means banks are going to have to take big write downs on them. That's a fact. It's just math. It's not a prediction. Now, what is one way where that wouldn't happen? Now, it's going to happen just because of the work from home thing, right? There are, certain, there are going to be a lot of properties out there that bottom line doesn't even really matter what happens with rates. If they got to pay one and a half to 2% higher than they're currently financed at, it's a no-go. But, you know, if rates came down drastically, that could soften that blow. Well, what's going to make rates come down drastically? A big slowdown in the economy, Right? So I I just don't think it's that complex. I don't think you need to have a CFA to look at this thing and go, hey, I'm not telling you. Well, you guys have heard my opinion. I'm not sitting there predicting an 08, 09 kind of crash. I'm just sitting there going, the setup in general for stock market returns ain't good. It just isn't. And people are like, exactly what you said before. No, no, no. Look, I've been railing about things being too expensive for a while. But I've also always said the caveat, look, here's the frustrating part. Well, interest rates are at zero. There's kind of it's like the equivalent of zero financial gravity. Right? I've said that many times. Well, they're not at zero anymore. And that to me is the big bogey that nobody's really paying attention to. Investors are still behaving as if we're in the same situation and we're just not. Everything has changed. Everything is almost a mirror image. It's the opposite. You know, think, think, think about what do you think the housing industry is going to look like next year? Not good, right? You just saw a massive drop in homeowner or home builder sentiment, right? The home builders are seeing the slowdown. Why don't they talk about it on the news? I don't know. I, I Well, I think the news just is Johnny come lately, right? So when things are good or things have been good, that's all they're going to want to talk about, you know? I also think that the vast majority of the media has a dog in the fight, right? They they want to see things go well because 
I think they're a much bigger fan of Biden being reelected in general than they are. You know, I, I, again, I'm not saying that's the reason why they've got positive spins on things, but I mean, I certainly think that that has some influence. I think we'd be crazy not to think that it doesn't. But when you start just looking at all these things, right, and the housing market is not a huge proportion of the U.S. economy, but it sure provides a lot of jobs. And you start looking at the mortgage rate applications data, it's like half of what, you know, it's the lowest point. It's been in 28 years, including 0809. Look at how I just, and that's why you just start going through these things one by one. And, and where I will submit, where I say, look, would all of these things be better if rates came down drastically? Yeah, they would. But what would bring rates down drastically? Right. Something bad happening. Right. So so now over the short term, now, ideally, what I think the Fed is hoping for is that they can keep rates here. And as things weaken, they can still I just there is no worse track record for getting the timing right than the Fed. And that's not me saying they're stupid or incompetent. It's just a, it's it, it it's just an observation. It's just it's just truth. And and to be fair to them. I'm not sure if you put any group of people in there that they would have a much – I mean I, I, I shouldn't say that. I think it is ludicrous that you don't have any real market practitioners on the FOMC. I just th- – that, that is insane to me, right? It's all just academics and wonks. That yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. But, but like I said, being fair to the Fed, if you had another group of people in there, they'd probably have another blind spot that they'd probably repeatedly make a mistake as it as it relates to monetary policy or economic policy in general. So when you just you know again you don't have to be a CFA you just start walking down these things the th- let's focus on my 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 headline to this topic was <clears throat> let's focus on only the certainty available. What do we know? What we know is what is currently going on literally does not benefit any consumer. Okay, so when you're sitting out there looking at this data set, looking at the current scenario, and you are modeling 12% increases in earnings next year, you are just extrapolating a line. Am I saying it is impossible? I will never say anything in this marketplace or economy is impossible, okay, because I know better. But once again, this is where that risk management mindset comes, comes into play. If that's the bet you are making and you end up being right, you can go ahead and pat yourself on the back, but it will, could probably be one of the worst things that ever happens to you. Why? Because if you make that bet 10 times, you're going to lose nine. As a matter of fact, if you made that same bet with a data set that looks anything like the environment we're currently looking at, 100% of the time in the past, you were wrong. And it just seems foolish to not make that at least your base case. Can, can you have some hope for optimism? Sure. I mean, you can do whatever you want. I'm not, I'm just saying as a responsible investor, especially for somebody nearing retirement, right? You, that's not the bets we want to expose you to, period. It doesn't matter if they're right or wrong. Hey, I got this great strategy that's going to probably make you 25% next year. It's only got a 10% chance of success, but boy, wouldn't 25%. You know what I mean? It just doesn't make any sense. And I don't think enough investors think about it that way. There's a better way. If you look at the change in our average client's portfolio from the top of 2021 till today, in total, average clients down six or seven percent from our peak. I there's a better way. There's a better way to do it. Over the last two months, when the average when the stock market's bled back, what? What are you giving back? 10%? Our stock portfolios are up three, four, something like that. There's a better way. You don't have to just get whipped around with everybody else. And you certainly don't need to be a, pay a fee to get whipped around like everybody else and get stock market returns. There's a better way, guys. Call us, 866-779-RISK and 866-779-RISK. Go to the radio show website, knowyourriskradio.com or capitalmanagement.com. You guys know the drill. Going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Stick with us through the break. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. This is Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham. Listen to Zach discuss key investment strategies across several asset classes, not just stocks and bonds. Get your free copy of Zach's new booklet, Common Sense Investing. Go to knowyourriskradio.com. How many times in recent memory has your financial advisor not reacted to current events and also not made a change in your investment portfolio? 
Now, think about all the volatile events during that time that have threatened your retirement. That's Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital and host of the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Todd, we talk about it all the time. Risk management. It's our number one focus. We actively manage every portfolio daily, looking for opportunities to lower risk, lower cost, and give you as much upside as possible. Let us show you how Bulwark's risk management strategy can protect that retirement you've worked so hard for. This is exactly why you need Zach and Bulwark Capital in your corner. You only get one retirement. Learn how Bulwark does it with their free common sense investing guide. Call 866-779-RISK or simply go to knowyourriskradio.com. That's 866-779-RISK or go to knowyourriskradio.com. Investment advisory services offer through Tech Financial LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital Management. And we are back. All right. So now a perfect dovetail off of that last conversation about why do we not agree with the consensus about things being great in a new bull market? I think we laid that out. And if you missed that, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. And again, guys, you're never going to hear hyperbole out of us. You're always going to hear us say we could be wrong. Okay, but I just, I think if you're sober and you're looking at this environment, I don't think that you see, look, I mean, if you believe that World War III is about ready to start and somebody's going to light off or, or, or set off a nuke, okay, yes, then my thesis about things not going horrifically wrong would be incorrect, okay? But once again, to me, that is the inverse of what I was just talking about, about people being bullish in this environment, Right? I think that being bullish in this environment is as uh, – I think it has as little chance of success as being – you know, you think of a bell-shaped curve. I think being bullish and expecting 12 to 15 earnings per, uh, increases next year – well, actually, I'd say that's probably a little more likely if we waited out. But I see that at being one end of the curve, and I see World War III starting, somebody lighting off a nuke at the other end of the curve. What is most likely to happen? By mathematical definition, something in the middle. Okay. And I and it dovetails perfectly into this. Let's look at earnings reports that came out this week. And I think it also does an incredible I think it if you look at this, I think it is a very good example of what we mean when we're saying people are blind to risk. Okay, we have sat there and watched Tesla two or three quarters in a row lower prices over and over despite their and their supporters constant claims that demand is unending, that demand is relentless. If demand is relentless, you don't cut the cost of your cars by 20%, okay? And we have seen price cut after price cut after price cut. Companies will sell any good at the highest prof, at the highest price that somebody's willing to pay for it, right? It's a maximization problem. When you see a company cutting co- or cutting prices, what does that tell you? It tells you the demand is going down. Why is demand going down? Well, I think people have binged on cars. This is what we talked to you about, the consumer air pocket, right? If people wanted stuff, chances are they've purchased it in the last two years. Second of all, most people finance cars. That has gotten decidedly more expensive. So Tesla comes out. They miss on margins, right? Their, their uh, what was it? It wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't their gross margin. Anyway, it was their, maybe it was Eh, anyway, what, I'm forgetting which it was, but one of their main uh, uh, margin metrics was down to 7.6%. Huge drop. Remember, everybody's, oh, these guys have mastered building cars and blah, blah, blah. They get way more margins than everybody else. That's why they deserve to be trading at 10x the valuation of Ford and all these other companies. Well, in the early days, when they were just coming out with their automobiles, that may have been true, right? The true believers were all buying them. Now that competition is coming on online there's a lot of used teslas available for sale right it's becoming more of a mature company in a mature market that whole trend of a tesla at any price it is it it's evaporated right it's not evaporating it's evaporated right in front of our eyes now all of a sudden things have gotten very price sensitive and rates are a big reason for that and i saw so many people opining about tesla down 10 percent after those earnings that seems excessive and you're looking going excessive Guys, this is a lesson about why valuations matter. It doesn't matter how great a company you think is. When you see a company that makes cars and you can, what have I been telling you for years? They're a tech company. No, they're not. They are a car manufacturer. 
Okay, and because the price of the stock goes up, everybody starts believe, believing and subscribing to the mantra. Well, they're a tech company. They're just trying to justify their reason for purchasing the stock. Right? It's like retrospective. It's retroactive. They're like, hey, well, it's the reason I bought it. You bought it because it went up a lot and you're hoping it kept going up. Okay, but valuation matters. I saw an analyst talk about how he thought this was excessive, and I'm sitting there going, excessive? This thing still trades at six and a half X the multiple of Ford. You think it dropped? You don't think that's giving Tesla enough credit? Trading at six and a half X the industry average multiple? I mean, what are you thinking? Like they're not going to be subject to the laws of normal economics? You think Tesla's really going to take over the car industry and be the only one that actually sells cars? I mean, what a ludicrous idea. That's never happened. Not in any industry. I mean, unless you want to go back to oil and, and Rockefeller. I mean, you know, you got to go back to that where where you saw those kinds of controls, you know, with one company. Now, maybe you have a cabal of companies that control a sector. But, you know, when, when, when the thesis becomes you need to buy the stock because this company is going to own 70 to 80 percent of the global car market. I mean, if that isn't your sign to exit stage left, I, I don't I don't know what is. Right. But valuations matter. We can have all of our stories about how great at the end of the day, you're buying a discounted stream of cash flow is what you should be buying. And it didn't take, like I said, you'd have to be a chartered financial analyst to sit down there and break down Tesla and just go, this thing is just insanely expensive. It just doesn't make sense. Fervor and bubble thinking is what's driving that price, not reality. Netflix is another one. You guys have heard me opining about that. Netflix released a quarter, and I was really shocked by the market response. On the face of it, it was a pretty good quarter. It was a little bit better than I was expecting. But then as you dug deeper into it, I didn't realize that those quarters metrics involved a couple things. First, they involved um, <clears throat> the new ad tier, right? So the cheaper, you know, so that, that was a big deal that you expected to increase subscriptions because they offer a cheaper version if you're willing to deal with ads. And then the password sharing. I remember a lot of the Netflix bulls were like, oh, this thing's revenues are going to jump 20, 30% as soon as people can't share passwords. And look, I thought that you'd see a climb in revenue, but I was like 20 to 30%. That, that's crazy to me. I mean, the, how many of those, you think, what do you think? 60% of the people that share passwords are all of a sudden going to sign up for something new. A lot of those people are sharing passwords because they don't think they can afford it. So they literally pulled both of those letters and they still only ended up with an 8% increase in revenue year over year, which isn't bad in this environment. I'm not saying it is. I think Netflix is a good company that's well run. But then the stock pops, what was it, 16% after that announcement came up, pushing its multiple back up over 40 for a company growing at 8% a year that is a trap for inflation. There aren't many businesses you can find that are more negatively impacted by inflation than creating content, right? You got to pay union members, you know, electricity, film, you know, can't, uh, uh, actors, salaries that you look on. I mean, creating content is a, is a inflation trap. And I point to these signs because if you think we're close to the bottom, these are not the type of investor behaviors that you typically see at bottoms, right? Bottoms are usually marked by, you know, you could think of 18 million, but, but not that, that extrapolated linear thinking, right? Sobriety steps in and usually bottoms are marked by pessimism, which is when you want to be buying. And I'm just sitting there going, if you, oh, the market's down. Guys, this is still a very optimistically marked market, price market. And so you look at the rest of the world. We've talked about how reliant the S&P is now on international revenue, revenues coming from overseas. UK is in stagflation. Europe, virtually all of Europe is entering in recession right now. China's struggling like it hasn't in 15 years. So once again, I'll ask you, where are those, where's that earnings growth going to come from? Do we want to run and hide? No, there's still a lot of things out there that I think are worth owning. I think we need to re reconstruct portfolios. I think they're way too heavy on the stuff that's worked well. And I don't think they're anywhere near exposed to the things that are going to work well in an inflationary, geopolitically marred landscape. And it's not all bad and not the, the end is coming soon. The sky is falling. Not saying that. I'm just saying the average portfolio out there is totally unprepared and ill-positioned to deal with what we're currently looking at. But there's a way around it. There's an alternative. Managing risk. Thinking outside the box. Doing different things. 
Right, everybody's running from bonds right now, and as perverse as this sounds, I'm the guy that's been beating up on bonds on the radio for seven years, and I'm sitting there going, "Yep, now's the time I want to start buying them." I don't know when rates are going to peak, but I think we're a heck of a lot closer to the top than the bottom. Right, we want to buy the things that other people are running from. I saw an article the other day that was stating that they thought Tesla—this is embarrassing—thought Tesla was a safe haven from falling bonds, and I went, "Oh my gosh." That's got to be a trigger point right there. That's got to it made me want to go out and buy more long dated bonds. And if that's the kind of thinking you're looking for in this environment, right? Outside the box, risk managed, making sure your financial future is good either way, which is what a retirement plan should be, right? It should be something that is that you can trust to finance your life for the rest of your life, regardless of what happens, right? Safeguards in place, risk management, right? Disaster preemptive actions, if that's what you're after, when I'm looking at this world today and asset prices where they are, I don't know why you wouldn't be looking at that. Most people aren't. What's your advisor going to tell you? Just ride it out. Well, maybe we should sell your bonds after they just took a 30% header. That's when you tell me there's a better way. Give us a call. 866-779-RISK and 866-779-RISK. Go to the radio show website, knowyourriskradio.com or capitalmanagement.com. You guys know the drill. You're going to think this is an excuse. I promised an interview. The only reason why we're not doing it today is because the interview just got twice as good and we're going to do it next week. Okay. And I almost never do this, but I want to tease it to you. We don't have it a hundred percent lockdown right now, but I think it's worth the waiting rather than talking to one. We're going to talk to two guys that were two of the main characters in the actual big short that actually were at the firm that Steve Carell ran in the movie. And we're going to talk to two of those guys. They've agreed to come on the show. We're going to get the inside story from the big short. We're going to talk about the fund they run that was up 129% last year. To me, that's worth waiting for. We, we got to run with it. So anyway, have a great weekend. I'm trying to think of what's going on this week. Anyway, have a great weekend. Final football game is up for us. So we got that coming on Saturday. The old tiny tykes are taking the field one more time. But uh, have a wonderful weekend. Stay safe. God bless you all. We'll see you next week. You're listening to the uh, Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. Thanks for listening to Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital. Whether it's preservation of capital or an aggressive growth strategy, every investor needs a clearly defined risk profile. Schedule your free risk review with Zach Abraham now at knowyourriskradio.com. Zach will be back with more Know Your Risk Radio next Saturday at noon on 97.3 Cairo FM and AM 770 KTTH. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.